0: Hello everyone, it's April 30th, 2019. This week, a very cool spacecraft is getting a not-so-cool downgrade due to, you guessed it, cost overruns. To learn about oceans beneath Europa, I think it will be worth it. But I have no say, just a podcast. So, let's do that. And lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 208 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So one thing that I was going to talk about or that we were going to talk about, I guess, it's not official news. So SpaceX has gotten the go-ahead from the FCC to lower the orbit of a bunch of its Starlink satellites. And I think that's interesting because it's what 1,000, I don't remember, one or set 4,000 something of them uh, from 1,000 something kilometers to 550 kilometers. That's a huge change. And I kind of wanted to talk about it. So I I figured I'll just do it at the top of the show. Clever. That's supposed to reduce latency, and it's also supposed to help with defunct satellites because they will deorbit faster. But that makes me kind of wonder why they had that high orbit in the first place. Like, that's a drastic change to almost half of their constellation, but they're still using just as many satellites. So you have the same number of satellites, but in a lower orbit, which is kind of like a denser beehive of activity there. I just thought it was strange uh, because that seems like a pretty big change to the architecture of how this is all going to work.
1: Do you know how big of a change the altitude difference was?
0: So originally it was 1,150 kilometers. Now it's 550. So that's what? Oh, that's about half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They cut it in half. It's twice as low now for 4,425 satellites. So that's how many they're going to be bringing down by half the altitude. To make such a huge change, you would think that, you know, that that means that there was some sort of flaw found in this whole system. And they said, hey, we need to, you know, drop the altitude of these satellites drastically. And I just don't know why that would be.
2: I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, Tesla puts out a, a car with a bigger battery. Well, what was the flaw with having a smaller battery? Nothing. It's just a trade-off, you know, it's more money, but it's also more range. And so I think in this case, um, it's actually kind of clever to have two different major orbits that you're occupying because it gets you kind of the the best of both worlds. Which is, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it works out, but that seems kind of cool. Personally, I'm totally uninterested by any Starlink news that doesn't pertain to the ground equipment because yeah. <laughs> that's the big thing that's going to make uh, Starlink work or not work is can you get me a very, very small form factor on the ground?
0: So the other two companies that are trying this, who are they? Uh, OneWeb and... OneWeb uh, and Kepler, Kepler, I think is called. Yeah, Kepler. Yeah, Kepler. Uh, so those two actually try to have the FCC block approval for this new orbit because they said that that might actually cause some problems with their ground stations. But, you know, like the FCC just overruled them. They're all trying to use, I guess, this KU band and... You have three different constellations that are all vying for the same bandwidth or close enough that, you know, it might cause interference. But the FCC said that that actually shouldn't cause interference because you would need a less powerful signal at a lower altitude to communicate. So maybe it will cause less of a problem. But they still tried to get it blocked. And I'm wondering if maybe they had some ulterior motive other than the whole bandwidth problem. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to know how that ground station technology works. I still don't know like if this is, I mean, it would have to be something that each individual household could have, right? Or do you think it's something that's just going to be broadcast kind of like a cell phone tower, something kind of like that, like if that would be how the infrastructure You mean would household
2: versus individual or household versus community?
0: Kind of like you would have something like, you know, cell towers, which would communicate with the satellites. And then from there, they would broadcast the signal. Something kind oh. of like that. Uh, is that yeah, how the ground uh, station thing works?
2: The I mean, what I've heard so far is that you basically... It, it's a household level internet mm-hmm. where... You get you know, something the size of a pizza box, put it on top of your house, and you now have satellite internet.
0: I mean, that would be in keeping with the whole goal because that's to give internet to the whole world. And obviously, you can't put big towers up just everywhere. So you would, you would want to have something very, very portable. Mm-hmm. So that was my bit of space news at the top of the show. <laughs> you guys were already chatting about onions and shit before yeah. we started Well, maybe recording. someday
1: we'll be using Starlink to look up cooking recipes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, I'm sure we will. Uh, you want to move on to this week in spaceflight history? Heck yeah. All right, so we have some new winners.
2: Yeah, so uh, Cy Kyle, that's uh, Kyle Foster of Hera 11 fame, uh we've talked to him before and i've followed him for a while but this is the first time i think he's guest for this week in space fight history uh ben hallert who's guessed a number of times uh and then uh two more newbies zach banks and ryan regner uh congratulations you guys all guessed correctly um <laughs> i think ben hallert <laughs> said something about this being a slow ball pitch after not getting any winners mm-hmm. last week, and that's <laughs> not untrue. Uh, so the clue from last week was uh, protein tradition, I think. And this week in spaceflight history is the fifth of May, nineteen sixty-one. Alan Shepard became the first American launched into space on a suborbital flight. Such a cool. I mean, you know, there are always issues which make these things fun, but it's so cool to go back so far in in spaceflight history, at least in in American Mm -hmm. spaceflight history. This is about as early as you can go for people. So uh, this was Mercury Redstone 3. The Mercury capsule was named Freedom 7, so you might also hear that uh, name thrown in. And uh, Alan Shepard ate a steak and egg breakfast. He had steak and eggs and toast, coffee, and orange juice, which is like Peak 1960s breakfast, if you ask me. (laughs) As Ben Hallert pointed out on Twitter, this is considered a low-residue breakfast. So, you know, if you're going to be sitting in a very small capsule for a long period of time, this is probably... Something that you want to aim for. So speaking of sitting in a small place for a very long time, uh, Shepard got into his capsule two hours before the scheduled launch, and then there were two and a half hours worth of delays after that. So after he had been lying on his back for three hours, he needed to pee.
0: So toast, coffee, and orange juice. I don't know why that you think that's a good idea. Because if that were me, that would not be a a fun (laughs) flight. No,
2: steak and steak and eggs is going to solve one problem. Um, drinking uh, a lot of coffee and orange juice is not going to help.
0: At least it's not a brand muffin, I guess, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, knowing astronauts, my guess is Alan just drank the coffee and left the orange juice there. Mm. Anyway, so since this was supposed to be a short suborbital flight, they didn't install a urine collection device. So Shepard's laying there going, hey guys, I really need to pee. Let's get me out of this spacecraft. <laughs> and nobody wanted to open the spacecraft back up because like, that's such a huge hassle. And they told him, well, you're you're just going to have to hold it, right? The answer was not just go ahead and pee in the capsule. It was... Hold it. Alan says, okay, no, screw that. I'm just going to pee. They actually turned off all of his bio collection devices because they were afraid that they were going to short out. Oh man, early spaceflight is, is such a trip. Anyway, so, you know, if you think about the position that you're in in a spacecraft, uh, the pee does not gather around your feet, it gathers uh, around your butt and lower back. And that's exactly what it did. Luckily, um, his spacesuit. Um, or f- flight suit had good air circulation, so he actually was dry by the time launch occurred um hmm. you know probably probably a little a uh, little crusty oh. <laughs> so speaking speaking of short flight, this was a totally successful flight uh, but it was pretty short it was fifteen minutes twenty two seconds um and uh, they didn 't do very much you know it 's a suborbital flight but Um, Shepard got to test the attitude controls. So he uh, flicked it over into manual and flew it around for a little bit, testing uh, its pointing abilities. And he said that it performed just like the simulator, which is fantastic. Um, A decent amount of the flight was done in automatic control, where the computer basically decides where to point the spacecraft. Uh, But they also put it into fly-by-wire mode, which is really cool. Fly-by-wire, of course, is where you don't tell the vehicle what adjustments to make you tell it where you want it to point and it decides what adjustments to make and so other than that first manual uh, mode i believe uh shepherd left it in fly by wire uh, when it wasn't an automatic he he left it in fly by wire for most of the time he really liked it um he said it felt like he was in control but it wasn't super hard to use and then the other major thing that they tested was the retro rocket pack so of course Um, the Mercury vehicle has got retro rockets literally strapped onto its heat shield. Um, and even though this was just a suborbital launch, they, uh, included a retro rocket pack and they did fire it up just to make sure it worked. And then he landed in the ocean and was pulled out with no real issues. It was, um, other than the delays. So the entire launch was delayed quite a quite a ways to make sure that Freedom 7 was ready to go. But um, other than the delays, it was a pretty nominal flight. Worked out pretty well. All right, and uh, you guys ready for the clue for next week? I am ready. Next week in 1967, the clue is: what is the opposite of lifting a body out of the desert?
0: Hmm. I mean, I would say burying one in the desert, right? But <laughs>
1: I'm from New Jersey, so I'm just thinking of the mobsters with the concrete shoes. Who sleep with that's the, the kind fishes. Kind the
0: opposite. <laughs> next week in 1967, what's the opposite of lifting a body out of a desert? Uh, if you think you know what that's about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck.
2: Good luck, everybody.
0: Europa Clipper's custom magnetometer is dead in the water. I don't know when we've last talked about Europa Clipper. Maybe never have we ever talked about it before. Uh,
2: w- whenever it was, it wasn't recent enough because Europa Clipper is awesome. Mm.
0: Yeah. I guess it's going to become slightly less awesome <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, because a key instrument here is just not going to happen because of some huge cost overruns. Now and that's it, unfortunate. Now, is
1: it so much that the magnetometer is toast or rather that it's kind of, it's Some of its sensors are toast, and it's kind of going to be downgraded in terms of sensitivity.
2: So the instrument is called uh, ICEMAG, Interior Characterization of Europa Using Magnetometry. ICEMAG is dead. So what they're replacing it with is a, quote, facility magnetometer, which to me says, you know, cots, or at least uh, off the shelf, if not commercially available. Sounds like something that we've already flown probably on another mission or something that we understand is already developed and ready to go. But boy, this was a cost overrun, like way out there. But, but first Dennis, do you want to talk about what IceMag was intended to do?
1: Uh, Sure. Cause it's pretty cool. It's actually the magnetometer measurements or the magnetometry of Europa is the, best piece of evidence for the subsurface ocean, uh, even more than, you know, the plumes that have been seen or just the surface characteristics. So the uh, upshot is that Europa has its own magnetic field, and it's too small a world that it should be creating its one its own magnetic field via the dynamo effect or anything like that.
2: The the dynamo effect is where you have a liquid core that's circulating and that movement generates an electric field, right? Exactly, exactly. And so as Europa passes through
1: Jupiter's magnetic field, it has uh, an electric current induced in this subsurface ocean, which then generates its own magnetic field. And so it's an induced magnetic field, and it varies each time Jupiter spins around once which is about 10 hour rotation rate right? and every orbit around Jupiter. And so the fact that that signal is there was kind of one of the big pieces of evidence that Europa has a subsurface ocean in the first place. So now with ice mag, you already kind of know it's there and we do have rough ideas of what the, uh, ice thickness is and the depth of the ocean, But um, with this better uh, or more sensitive uh, magnetometer, the idea was to really try to characterize how thick the ice is and how deep the ocean is, how thick the ocean is.
2: Sorry, real quick, just to clarify, you're saying a, a more sensitive magnetometer. What we're comparing that to is Galileo which did do a couple of passes of Europa but obviously wasn't focused on Europa. Right right right.
1: And did did um Voyager get close enough to Europa to make any
2: magnetic field measurements? Yes. It yep.
1: it did. Okay. It,
2: it actually discovered uh, the subsurface ocean.
0: So is this completely like 100% confirmed that there is a subsurface ocean or is there still some amount of doubt here?
2: Pretty much. I, I, this, this
1: ice mag or whatever Europa Clipper brings, whatever magnetometer it brings, is not going to be about really discovering or confirming the ocean so much. Because not only do you have the magnetic field measurements, but also just looking at the surface uh, topography of Europa, that there's evidence of cryo volcanic activity in the past some parts of it just straight up look like icebergs you know around the north pole just kind of frozen into place there's the plumes um there's also tidal deformations that they're measuring so there's gravitational measurements as they have spacecraft flying by europa that kind of tell it needs to have it has to be a little squishier and thus you know a uh, subsurface ocean but uh in particular uh by you know using uh, your magnetometer at different frequencies You can get an idea of the thickness of both the ice, based on the kind of uh, measurements you get there, as well as the thickness of the ocean. So that's the idea, is to sample it at a bunch of different frequencies, and then from there, get a much better idea than, you know, the icy crust is, I think, what, something like 10 kilometers, plus or minus, who knows what, and then the ocean is, what, I think 100, 100 50 are kind of numbers thrown around. But these are all, like, I don't know, huge error bars on that. And so if the idea was, you know, in the future someday you want to land something on there and then maybe, maybe actually send a heat probe to go and melt through the ice, knowing how thick the ice is is going to definitely affect how you build and design that mission.
0: Mm -hmm. And so this magnetometer that was canceled um it uses something called helium vector magnetometry
1: scalar vector helium sensors
0: scalar vector helium sensors and it's supposed to use the helium gas which is in some way i guess affected by the magnetic field through i guess in a similar way to maybe how hydrogen is i'm really very murky on the physics here do you know more about that cuz i sure don't
1: not really i can <laughs> i mm-hmm. i do not i've never i'm not a planetary scientist that's my, my that's my excuse no i uh, (laughs) yeah i really don't know i i from what i've read there are trade-offs between uh using a conventional fluxgate one which that one i do know because of uh, uh don't panic geocast actually talked about magnetometers fairly recently and they probably talked about vector scalar helium ones too but i don't know what the actual trade-offs are other than maybe the ones more sensitive than the other but flux gate has to do with essentially running a current and inducing a magnetic field and then another current within your uh sensor so kind of just like a mini scaled down version of what i just said about open's mm-hmm. induced magnetic field and then as that device passes through a magnetic field suddenly the you know things are going to be offset a little bit and then you can change, you could see how offset the induced current is and back out a magnetic field from that. In the case of the helium one, the fact that they, you know, it's got helium in there, my guess is that has something to do with the uh, magnetic moments of the helium atoms and then coming up with a clever way to measure a magnetic field that way. But I have no idea really how it works.
2: <laughs> I mean, that, that sounds reasonable because that's... That's basically what NMR is, is mm-hmm. getting helium atoms to bounce around.
0: But I mean, generally, you need a very massive magnet to do that, right? Isn't that you how like need, that works? You
2: need a very massive magnet to be able to actually like map out resonances. But just to see them flip back and forth, like it's kind to of like,
0: but not too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: It, so it's kind of like talking about using diodes to emit light and detect light. It, it, this is a detector and it's kind of like saying, well, don't you need a big battery to get a diode to emit light? It's like, yeah, yeah. But this is the opposite of that. Jupiter's doing the work for us <laughs> and, and Europa, I guess. <laughs> it's really cool. I didn't realize that Europa's uh, magnetic until today. I didn't realize that mag. That Europa's magnetic field was like an echo of Jupiter's. That's really cool. Yeah, seeing that time variation is really kind of the
1: thing where, yeah, there's just no other way to kind of get a magnetic field. Because even if you came up with a dynamo, like somehow that Europa did hold on to enough internal heat, and the fact that it's tidally locked to Jupiter, it's not rotating fast enough for a dynamo effect, but somehow it still happened. New physics. Well, that's not going to vary every 10 hours is jupiter spins so it really is uh, it's great cuz you can just break it down really straightforward like that
2: <laughs> um, so ice mag is not only going to be looking at ice thickness but it can also help us characterize or a magnetometer can also help us characterize the exosphere um, because uh europa passes through jupiter's plasma torus or it's you know inside jupiter's plasma torus so these plasma particles bounce off of its exosphere which we're going to be able to look at using magnetometry and then also apparently this is going to help us find geysers on the surface of europa huh. um just seems very weird to detect geysers with a magnet but i guess that's a thing <laughs> i guess yeah what are, if charged species are getting ejected is that the idea uh, i it must be you know It must be. So I wanted to real quick run through the other instruments uh, on Europa Clipper just because it's awesome. And some of these should sound familiar. At least they sound familiar to me. Uh, So e is Europa Thermal Emission Imaging System. MISA is the Mapping Imaging Spectrometer for Europa. ICE, E-I-S, ICE, is Europa Imaging System. Europa UVS is Europa Ultraviolet Spectrograph. Reason is the radar for Europa assessment and sounding colon ocean to near surface. PIMS is plasma instrument for magnetic sounding. So PIMS is going to work with the magnetometer pretty closely. Mm. And then uh mass spec, <laughs> mass, mass pecs, is the mass spectrometer <laughs> for planetary exploration, M A S P E X mass uh, It's very, very clear. That rolls off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, SUDA is surface dust mass analyzer. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is going to be so cool. We're going to understand so much about Europa. I just love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europa Clipper is so cool. Uh, okay, so I think I think we need to talk about the actual news here, which is the cost overrun, which is. A huge cost. So when I first read this, this article, because I mean, we knew that they, that it was expensive and we knew that there was a review going on. It started last year. uh, But when I saw this headline, it's been canceled because it's too expensive. I was like, well, how expensive can an instrument be? Like, this is one tiny part of a big spacecraft. NASA needs more money. Like I as a taxpayer am willing to pay for this. Why are we canceling this? Mm Well, holy cow, what a cost overrun. So right now, the current estimated cost is $45.6 million. Not only is that huge, that's, you know, three times the original estimated cost. Uh, It's also $16 million over the original cost trigger that they set for it. Not only is that a huge cost, but the review from last year indicates that this is a cost instability that will not stabilize. It's going to continue to push the cost upwards quite a ways before it even stabilizes. So it's kind of like uh speed versus acceleration versus jerk. <laughs> Our current speed is $45.6 million. Uh, and that's, continuing to accelerate or, or the the acceleration is probably slowing, but you know, the, it, it's going to be more than that. And uh, Dennis, you and I were trying to figure out why. I think what what kind of seems reasonable to me is that the high precision of this uh, instrument over a long period of time is probably what's driving this cost increase. But why don't you talk about the the accuracy by itself, because that's really interesting.
1: Like we talked about before, the more accurate your magnetometer is, the more accurate you can measure, say, the icy crust thickness. And for ice mag specifications, they were going to try to get a uh, magnetic field measurements down to less than 1.5 nanotesla over the course of the mission lifetime, which would correspond to about one and a half kilometers, uh, plus or minus one and a half kilometer measurement of the uh, crust thickness, as well as presumably the ocean thickness. And so this would be um, better than Galileo, uh, which was kind of the only other, um, well, I Again, I'm asking myself, does Juno have a magnetometer? Hmm. So anyway, ignoring that. (laughs) So Galileo is the only kind of spacecraft uh, orbiter to Jupiter that has been able to take long-term magnetic field measurements of Europa as well as the other Galilean moons. and uh, Or I guess Jovian moons, I should say, be more general. Oh, and while I'm at it, Ganymede and Callisto likely have subsurface oceans, again, based on those induced magnetic field measurements from Galileo. So awesome stuff. But um, Galileo's uh, sensitivity anywhere you look is quoted as being, you know, much better than one and a half nanotesla. And so the kind of question that I immediately had was, well, what gives? I mean, why are we, you know, going three times over the original estimated cost for IceMag if we were able to do something better in the 90s? And my hypothesis uh, is that this is the difference between uh, long term versus short term uh, kind of instantaneous measurements, yeah. and it probably has to do with the degradation of the spacecraft and the instrument over the lifetime. From experience, I know the Chandra X-ray Observatory has uh, some molecular gunk building up on its, you know, main detector, and so the images are kind of constantly becoming less sensitive uh, year after year as this uh, accumulates. And so I can imagine that that is why anytime you hear this, like one and a half. nano tesla absolute accuracy they're always saying you know over the mission lifetime or you know over you know many years
2: and and we should probably give some context for like how sensitive this is so um a fridge magnet is a thousandth uh uh, sorry a millionth of a tesla so that's a, a decimal followed by two zeros and a one the earth's magnetic field is four zeros and a five so that'd be five billionths of a Tesla. A nano Tesla is eight, yeah, because it's it's ten ten to the minus nine is nano. So that's eight zeros and a one. That's how small a nano Tesla is. <laughs> so that's super 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 tiny amounts of of magnetic flux.
1: Evidently, the from what I've read, at least for Galileo's magnetometer, the limiting resolution or the limiting sensitivity was due to the analog to digital conversion of the electronics. Wow. So again, yeah, context. Yeah, that's,
2: no, that's really good. Yeah, so, you know, Europa Clipper's awesome, just not going to be as sensitive to magnets.
0: Yeah, I was trying to look up exactly why this was uh, so expensive. I found a Space Policy Online article. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was Thomas Zerbukin, I can never say his name, but he says that it, it could still take some pretty good measurements with a cheaper magnetometer. So, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say, yeah, like, what's the difference? Like, why?
1: It seems to be tied to those those scalar vector helium sensors, but what yeah. about them? I mean, they do exist, you know, this, Right. I don't think this yeah. is unproven, new, developed technology. So
0: <laughs> and that's kind of what I was reading. Is that it has something to do with those sensors specifically? But why are they so much more expensive in this case? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: The plan with ICE uh, Mag was to have four of these sensors along the boom, right? Because you want it on a boom to keep it as far away from the mm-hmm. magnetic fields coming from the electronics of the rest of the, rest of the spacecraft. So the it was going to consist of four sensors. So the two inner ones would both be flux gates and the two outer ones, both the scalar vector helium sensors. And so maybe the integration of all four of those. But I thought that was a really neat idea too, was they could actually beat down their sensitivity even further because any you know residual magnetic fields from the spacecraft, it's mm-hmm. going to be stronger at the closest sensor yeah. and weakest at the farthest sensor. And So they could use that gradient to subtract that out even better. Than they could otherwise.
2: It's a pretty cool idea. Yeah,
1: just too expensive.
0: All right, let's do short and sweet, and three as usual. What's our first one, Dennis?
1: Mars Insight detects first Mars quake. Yeah, scientists. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was perfect timing because I was teaching waves to my physics class the next <laughs> day. So, <laughs> had everybody listen to it. Scientists announced that the primary scientific instrument of the Mars InSight lander, SISE, has detected its first Mars quake. Developed by the French Space Agency, the triple pendulum seismometer, with improved sensitivity from its motor driven equilibrating system, Detected the event on April 6, two and a half weeks prior to the announcement. The red planet now joins the moon as worlds beyond Earth for which seismic activity has been directly measured.
2: U2 2 enters its fourth lunar day. So the Chang'e 4 uh, lander and its rover have now entered overtime. The mission was designed to last three months, but the lander and rover are still operational and are now carrying out extended science and exploration tasks at the Von Karman Crater. The U-22 rover has covered a total of 178.9 meters so far putting it past its predecessor, which traversed a total of 114 meters. There is no official word yet on exactly what activities the rover and lander are performing, only that the lander is in good communication with the Chie Chiao relay satellite.
0: Lastly, Curiosity memory issue is partially solved. Uh, The Curiosity rover experienced an issue with its non-volatile memory on its B-side computer back in September of last year, The rover was then switched to its A-side backup. However, last month, the A-side memory experienced a similar problem to that of the B-side. Luckily, the B-side computer memory that was originally causing the issue has been partitioned off, and the B-side computer has been operating normally for the past month. Further information on the details of this memory anomaly should be forthcoming in the next few months. So I hope you followed all of that, A-sides and B-sides. I think I got it right.
2: Okay, stand by. We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction, Burns. This week we have one correction from Chairboy or Ben Hallert.
2: Ben Hallert has been entertaining us this entire recording with uh, leak dances. (laughs) But uh, so in this week in Spaceflight History last week, I talked about how cool it would have been if we actually got to launch a space shuttle from Vandenberg because we would have been able to use these um, mobile vertical assembly structures. And Ben points out that actually... They did use them. The Delta IV launches uh, out of Vandenberg did use these structures. So the the mobile platform and the alternative to the mobile platform, the stationary platform and the mobile buildings. Uh, were in use by uh, ULA, which is
0: pretty cool. We've seen this before, right? Like, I remember mm-hmm. watching a video, and I think it was at Vandenberg, and I had seen that being used. So, But this isn't the same structure, is it? Like, is the one that would be used for shuttle? Because yeah, I believe it is yeah oh okay they are because I figured they'd be custom fitted to the spacecraft
2: yeah i don't I don't know what what alterations they had to do but yeah i mean i I think in this case a building is pretty much a building the expensive part is the rolling structure
0: yeah and I guess they would have to change around the internal scaffolding but otherwise yeah, exactly they can get it to Fit. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to upcoming launches. We got two launches.
1: Yeah, our first launch will be uh, May first. It'll be uh, the postponed Falcon 9 Block five taking uh, CRS seventeen to the space station. Uh, this is a cargo resupply that'll be carrying the Orbiting Carbon Observatory three as well as the uh, STP H uh, six. All these fun science experiments uh, that'll be put on station and elsewhere. And so this will be launching on May 1st at 0759 UTC with an instantaneous launch window uh,
2: launching out of space launch complex 40. That's going to be rendezvousing with the space station the next day, May 2nd at 5 a.m. Eastern Time, or at least the coverage begins at 5 a.m. Eastern Time. The capture is scheduled for 6.50 a.m. Eastern Time. Installation coverage is going to begin at 9 a.m. Eastern Time.
0: And then next up is uh, we have an Electron launch, and that's on May 4th, and that's launching STP-27RD, a mission procured by the Department of Defense. And there's a lot of stuff on here. Well, I I guess it's just three satellites, but um, this is their heaviest launch to date at 180 kilograms. It has a little CubeSat experiment, it looks like, which is using a plug-and-play architecture. So that sounds neat. I'm not sure what that's about exactly, but that's sponsored by the Air Force and a space situational awareness satellite, as well as a Falcon Orbital Debris Experiment, which is sponsored by the Air Force as well. Um, and that will evaluate ground-based tracking of space objects. So that sounds cool. I think that anything that tracks space debris is a good thing, because I'm just always paranoid about it. Like, I feel like that that's going to ruin our future in space and you know mm-hmm. before we even have it if we're not <laughs> careful so that's launching on May 4th uh at 0, 0600 UTC that window goes all the way to 1000 UTC so it's a 4 hour launch window mm. and that is from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1 and that's at the uh Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand so watch that one if you can
2: very pretty launch site
0: all right, those are your upcoming space flight events. That then brings us to the end of the show. So we will deorbit, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 on Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us
2: make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at at orbitalmechanics.com.
0: So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye everybody. See ya.